Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's. Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them all. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen and Ken here. Hi, Ken. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm good. Are you a fan of George Clooney's movies? Um, yeah, I mean, he's made a lot of movies. Well, I'm a fan of some of his movies. Well, what would you be particular for now? See I like this ties into what I want to talk. I about. like that movie Up in the Air. That's exactly the one I wanted to talk about, Ken. Oh yeah, I'll tell you why. Go on. Do you want to explain the? Would you just explain the plot of well, Up in the Air. Well, he's this kind of um, he's a human resources guy who flies around the world um, sacking people, sacking people. Yeah, or flies around America anyway. He gets a lot of free, he's got a lot of frequent flyer miles, and his goals, Owen, his goals in life are all wrong. You know, he thinks. He's got everything just squared away, nicely squared away. But actually, his life is all over the place and he doesn't even realise it. He starts to realise it, of course, but he falls in love, Ken. It takes a chance encounter <laughs> in order to open his eyes to what's really important in life. Well, I don't know if some of the biggest clubs in the Premier League, some of the owners of those clubs have had chance encounters all around the same time. Or if some other trigger has set them off on a road to introspection. But it seems to me, no matter what their managers do, they just can't bring themselves to fire them. Louis van Gaal, boring the arse off everybody at Old Trafford. No problem, you're getting a new contract according to the stories today. <laughs> Manuel Pellegrini, yeah, lose to Stoke. Well, he probably will get fired actually pretty soon, but at the moment he's still clinging on. And Jose Mourinho can now lose a home game against Bournemouth and still wake up on Monday to stories that Roman Abramovich is standing firmly behind him. I don't know who Abramovich met, Ken, uh, in a chance meeting, but he seems to have, uh, his values seem to have altered greatly in the last number of weeks. Yeah, he, re- he, he seems like a new man, all right. Um, That's fine. You can lose to Bournemouth at home. Nobody really cares. Well, I suppose Bournemouth is looking and thinking. Well, he's he's like, well, I've tried a lot of different ways. I, usually, I always just sack the guy when I get bored or annoyed with him. You know, did it before with all the all the managers. Uh, I mean, Avram Grant's last game was the Champions League final, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, and he replaced a manager who had won five major trophies in in three seasons, I think. Um, uh, and you know, Ancelotti was sacked the season after he won the double, and I suppose Abramovich maybe is thinking, "Well, I've tried doing that, and maybe maybe I should try another way of doing it." I'm sick of being Ryan Bingham, is what he's saying, Ken. 
Ryan B. Oh, he's that was the name of eponymous hero. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he. Uh, yeah, he, he seems to be sticking with it. Although I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I've, I find there's something slightly ridiculous about this. It's sort of the kind of frenzy surrounding it has subsided a lot. Around Mourinho. Yeah, because it's kind of the same thing happening all the time. And he hasn't said anything interesting in a while either. Yeah, he's been studiously dull now. <laughs> he's he's just trying to hide in plain sight. He realizes people don't <laughs> spend that much time talking about the defeats if he doesn't explode after them. Well, it's also look he he, he just keeps doing the same thing. He's become boring. He's like uh, I suppose the media own is a bit like one of those primitive predators that sees movement. You know, it's it detects movement in the landscape. It can't really interpret. It doesn't have a good you know that good eyesight, but it it will pick out something that's moving, something that's changing will immediately be picked out and swooped upon. But, you know, this Mourinho thing has just been going on for so long <laughs> that it's almost ceased to be an interesting part of the landscape. It's being mixed up. People are thinking it's a waterfall or something. You know, it's just, it's not, it's not prey. It's, it's just a feature of the landscape which appears to move but isn't really a, a thing. Maybe that's, maybe that's what's happening with Mourinho. Not everyone is, you know, we can't, we can't even be bothered uh, with this anymore. I mean, you know, there's the Paul Kimmage argument that uh, this is boring anyway. It's just boring to uh, focus on Jose Mourinho. Who cares about this? It's boring. Uh, I mean, it is interesting. You know, I, I feel... Oh, I'm, in, I'm interested, yeah. I feel it's interesting. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on here. But, you know, even how many times can you go and see Macbeth, Owen? <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> how, many times, how many times can you sit there, uh, you know, watching that, that wonderful play, even though it is the shortest Shakespeare play, realistically, four or five, six times in a row? You know, so we're so at the moment we're kind of we're going to focus on other things today. Let's do that now in Ken Early's report on sport. I guess the the exception, Owen, to uh, to to what you're saying, this general trend of towards patience in the Premier League, maybe the board of Swansea City. And uh, there's a lot of rumours at the moment that Gary Monk has been sacked already uh, by Swansea City. However, these rumours as yet remain uh, unconfirmed. Uh, what we do know is that Gary Monk is in big trouble. Uh, this, I mean, this is a team that I hailed as possessing the finest midfield in Europe. You did, yeah. <laughs> they were the example of the rising middle class of the Premier League. And maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe that's part of the problem here. Maybe at Swansea City, the board was paying too much attention to this podcast. And maybe they think they should be up there battling with Leicester City at the top of the Premier League. Uh, but instead, uh, they're in the wretched position of being 15th in the league, only one point behind Chelsea, uh, which is a humiliation for everyone at the club. And it's really just not good enough. Um, uh, uh, behind Chelsea, above Norwich, Bournemouth, Newcastle and Sunderland, only two points off safety, though, for Swansea City. And most recently thrashed 3-0 by Leicester to run away league leaders. So, um, so, I mean, Monk's, Monk has become an increasingly um, pathetic in the true sense of the word, you know, a, a figure who evokes pity, you know, a, a manager who doesn't really know why this is happening. Um, although, you, you know, ju- by, judging by the kind of trigger happiness of, of well, Swansea's apparent trigger happiness here, you do wonder what, is, what, what has been going on at the club. But that there could be some. Well, it strikes me that it strikes me that they. Okay, the results have not been good, 
they do appear to be in a bit of a tailspin. At the same time, the situation is hardly irretrievable, and he did do well previously uh, when he came in. Remember, they, they removed Michael Laudrup and put Monk in. You know, Michael Laudrup uh, was a huge figure in the in the game. You know, Gary Monk was kind of nobody, but he was Swansea's nobody. Laudrup also had a fairly quick fall from grace there. He was flavour of a number of months for them at yeah. Swansea, and then things Won the league cup. started going downhill, and it seemed pretty quickly he was gone. Yeah, he was gone um, before so, yeah. the next season was over. Um, so they so they, they acted quickly there, but they brought in Monk. They, so Monk was, you know, their pick again. He was the Swansea man. As he says himself, nobody knows the Swansea way. Nobody knows what this club is about more than me. Uh, and last season was very good. Now, you don't just immediately become a terrible manager, but maybe it, it is possible that things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Something fundamental can go wrong. Didn't sound really as though Gary Monk knows how to turn it around. Uh, and if he does get sacked, well, I don't know. Um, I guess Swansea will probably be able to attract maybe Brendan Rodgers. Maybe they'll start doing what Chelsea do. Just re- reiterating their former managers in an endless loop. Um, uh, but we're, you know, as yet, we don't know whether uh, Monk has been sacked. So if, if that does happen before we finish recording this, we will we will mention that. I guess you'll... Um, You'll be seeing it anyway yourself. Anyway, what else will you be seeing? Later on, there's another panorama, another FIFA-based panorama. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What's left to expose? Oh, yeah. Well, there, there is, for instance, I mean, the main thing that the BBC, this does make it sound like there's not a huge amount in it, but the main thing would be that uh, the FBI are apparently investigating links between Sepp and $100 million worth of bribes. $100 million worth of bribes, you say? Well, these are kind of bribes everyone knew about. Well, apart from Sepp Blatter, he's kind of said, oh, I didn't even know much about that. But they were bribes which um, involved ISL, the former marketing partner of uh, FIFA. Um, and they, essentially, it looks as though ISL were being used to sort of funnel money to people. Now, we kind of knew all this. We knew all this. And FIFA's sort of defense, insofar as they have a defense, is, well, bribery was actually not illegal in Switzerland until 2002. <laughs> Commercial bribery was was fine. I mean, if I wanted to bribe a judge, say, or, you know, if I wanted to, to bung a politician some cash to, to get a political favour, that wouldn't have that wouldn't have been legal. But business executives bribing each other to make deals go a certain way? I mean, who's got a problem with that? We're all in business to make money, right? It wasn't even frowned upon at that point? It wasn't illegal. Maybe there was a slight frowning. Maybe you'd got some of your, some of your more strict Calvinist types in Switzerland who would have... Who would have who would have frowned upon it, you know, from their ivory towers, right? But maybe uh, some of the more easygoing Swiss would have been like, "Look, you know, none of us is perfect. You know, all we're we're, we're all just here on Earth uh, on a pilgrimage to make of ourselves what we can," you know. So, uh, so that that in itself isn't a new allegation. The fact that the FBI apparently have a letter from Joao Havelange, which says that Sepp Blatter knew about all this all the time. Was fully appraised of this, and that might be that might uh, be a significant thing if the FBI can prove that. Hang on, this wasn't all just taking place in Switzerland. This also affected um, the things in the American sphere of influence, which, as we know, the Americans tend to define that as being quite an all-encompassing sphere, uh, or they have they they sometimes do that, you know, when they when they're of a mind to. So maybe Sepplauer could have a problem, more of a problem with the FBI than he already has. Um, there's also a quote from Lord Treesman, the former chairman of the FA, who uh, is claiming that his sources who he trusts 
uh, always been reliable. Two sources, always very reliable with good information. That the sum Qatar spent on their World Cup bid was 117 million pounds. That's quite a lot. Um, uh, the uh, English bid was roughly 20 million pounds, which is still quite a lot of money. But when you consider Okay, there's an extra hundred million on there almost. So that's just in the Qatar case, it's just the bid. It's just what got them to the point that they had were given the, the rights. Yeah. Nothing has oh, no, not, happened since. Not not like stadiums or you know, infrastructure or anything. The real money, stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um so that's tre- a lot, yeah. It is a lot. And and Treason's making the point, what you know, what what did all the money go on? We don't really have a full and you know, a thorough accounting of where this money went. Um and he, you know, he would like to know. But, you know, I mean, again, it's it's sort of maybe people will be saying, oh, you mean Qatar might have used the fact that it's a very rich country to help it in its World Cup bid, you know, in some way. You know, it's 8.30 tonight anyway, if you, if you want to tune in. But uh, there is a good quote from David Beckham as well. Um, David Beckham, who's a, who's a practical man. And he says, whether it's corrupt or not, those countries have been chosen. People need to get behind that. It's about bringing football to new countries. They should stick with it. They'll make it work. So Beckham is kind of like, I love that. Whether it's corrupt or not, people need to get behind it. You know, I suppose uh, that is one way to look at it. When all this is breaking, at one point over this entire process of um, investigation into what actually happened, how Qatar got the got the World Cup, one of the big issues being made, I think it was in the Daily Mail article that we read out a while back, uh, the time of whoever, Prince William, David Beckham, and whoever else went over. David Cameron. David Cameron. Wasted. That was one of the, the big things, that David Beckham's time was wasted. He doesn't seem to be too worried about it. Uh, no. I'm sure he's got his time well mapped out. He's got other things that he has done before and since. Well, he does He does also say, um, they said, oh, do you think FIFA's turning a corner, David? This is the Radio Times interviewing, by the way. It's not you know exactly David Frost or whatever, but he says, uh, do you think they're turning a corner? And he says, no, they're just hitting the bend. It's such a mess, it's going to take a while to sort out. For me to see the game, the way it's been treated and looked after is devastating. It's disgusting. So on the one hand, it's disgusting and devastating. On the other hand... Just get on with it. Yeah, no point in moaning about this. <laughs> just get behind it. I suppose there's that quote, um, is it F. Scott Fitzgerald? Uh, the sign of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and not... can't remember how it ends, but... You know, not to be too troubled by that. Yeah. That's the gist of it. And I guess that's what David Beckham is doing there. He also is, like Jose Mourinho, a big fan of the oval ball game. It turns out, I love watching it. I love the whole thing. I've enjoyed going to Twickenham more than I've enjoyed watching football. Says uh, Beckham in possibly a sly dig at Lee Van Gaal. Um, Van Gaal, who, you know... Uh, now, I saw a good bit of this Manchester United-West Ham game. And, you know, you're listening to the crowd and you can hear the attack, 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 attack. And you can hear then the booing at the end. Crowd at Old Trafford, not happy. Andy Tate made a reappearance, uh, giving his views on the game. I mean, <laughs> I watched his views. What can I say? You know, I'm I'm responsible. I'm partly responsible for this phenomenon. You, email, you, you aren't a fan of this phenomenon of... I almost falsely irate fans outside, generating anger uh, outside grounds. And yet you did email me this Andy Tate, the latest from Andy. Just so, just, I, I thought, just so you know, you sure, just so Andy Tate on this. has pronounced on the current situation. I mean, there, there, there was, yeah, there, there's a lot of bad ones out there. But, you know, Andy Tate still has got some authenticity. I, I feel he's hamming it up slightly, but there's some authenticity. And, and the authenticity is in the, 
essentially absurdity of his views. So, for instance, in this latest one, he says, we could have been top of the league, uh, but, you know, now, midweek, uh, the next game, Van Gaal, the door is beckoning. <laughs> you know? So essentially, it's kind of like, we could have been top if only the results had gone slightly differently. However, now that they didn't go that way, if he loses the next game, he should be out. So, you know, people are complaining this game is boring or this match is boring. This game was not boring at all, in my opinion. It was a, a good game to watch. It was evenly balanced. It was pretty tense. You didn't know who was going to win. There was a lot of, there was a lot of kind of near misses. Um... And it, there was a real tense mood, you know, in the last time. Are Manchester United going to do this? Are they going to get the goal that would validate everything that would go before? Or will they fail the score? And, you know, will this be greeted with howls of derision as they once again have a nil-nil? With, oh, nil-nil. No, we don't. We never get nil-nils. Or will West Ham get a late goal? And uh, and we could have a real, you know, I mean, all of these outcomes were, were potentially Just pretty interesting. that exciting, though. Uh, it was. It actually was. It, it sounds like exciting in the way... It's, what you're describing there sounds more like a difficult book that you're wading through. Yeah. You're getting some sort of satisfaction out of it. Yeah. But maybe the satisfaction is more a slap-yourself-on-the-back type satisfaction. I that, feel this book is making me a better exactly, man. Exactly, yeah. It sounds like... I don't think most people watch football for near misses and... The result being up in the air. Hey, well, you gotta ten you minutes know, to go. That's they're they're fine, but I think you want a bit more than that out of your game. We're out there, we're journeying. You know, we're we're all on a journey, and we're looking. That's what we. You know, sometimes you're gonna have to, to you know, to walk across the desert. You know what I mean? In search of the promise that uh, it's not it's not just going to be fed to you. You know, you can't just sit back in your chair and like have this stuff intravenously pumped in. You know, in the form of excitement, in the form of goals, and you know, penalties, red cards. You know, whatever whatever else constitutes excitement these days. Apparently, you know, a, an exciting, a good football match between two quite evenly balanced teams that could go either way isn't good enough for people these days. I don't know what they want. Are they playing too much, too many video games? Is that the problem in our society? They want their teams to attack, attack, attack. And we're going to talk to Jonathan Wilson about that. Just to mention some of Van Hal's quotes. I don't understand. They shout attack, attack, because we are the dominating team, not West Ham. I know the fans are disappointed, but so am I. So are the players. Um, I think when we've scored a goal, they're very pleased. And they were supportive more than ever, I think. So we have to score that goal. And we didn't do that. Now, he says, when he says when we have scored a goal, what he means is if we if we had scored a goal. Um, if we had scored a goal, they would have been very pleased. That's actually what Van Hal means. Um, and that's, it's a good point. I mean, if they'd got a late goal... I don't think people would be saying, oh, you know, brilliant, this is finally light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. But they didn't get the goal. But everything else was the same, apart from the fact that Jesse Lingard's shot goes a couple of inches the wrong side of the post. Every other detail would have been the same, and everyone would have been happy in one situation and not in the other one. You know, it's kind of a... It, it strikes me that people have to evaluate it on more criteria than just the goal. You wanted to mention one of the great goal scorers of our time? Um, Speaking of goals, oh yeah. Um, well, we have to we have to mention Nicholas Bentner. Uh, Nicholas Bentner has done an interview. He's he's at Wolfsburg now, yeah. And he's done an interview with the um, uh, Elf Freunde, the um, German uh, kind of uh, football magazine. It's kind of you know quality football magazine. You know? They do. Uh, they were the 
David the crowd who did the feature on Croke Park, remember? Uh, the tribal Irish uh, warfare. Uh, look at these blood-spattered warriors. Um, it means everything to them. Do you realise they don't get paid? All this kind of stuff. Um, but they've done an interview with Bentner who who appears... I mean, I was just looking at looking at this interview. The photograph of Bentner. It's amazing. He's, he's wearing cream trousers, a uh, kind of navy blazer, shades, uh, leather uh, moccasins, and leather driving gloves. <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, he's wearing shades. It's, it's like a... It looks like a kind of a foggy... Uh, a foggy morning in Lower Saxony, you know, not in in November, <laughs> not exactly like, you know, it's it's not one of the great ultraviolet light uh, kind of hotspots of the world. Um, they reckon that he looks like he's going to Ascot, but I think he actually looks like he's he's about to hop into Yellow Rolls Royce and drive, you know, from West Egg to Astoria, Old Sport. <laughs> this is. What Bentner, but what Bentner is saying in the interview is, I'm tired of being portrayed as an idiot, says the man in leather driving gloves. <laughs> um, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this rubbish. He says, ask anyone at Wolfsburg, is Nicholas in the gym before training? Is Nicholas always in the gym after training? Anyone would confirm that I am. I have even bought an exercise bike for my flat that I'm working hard is there for everyone to see. I've always had a huge desire, but perhaps not always the right perspective. I used to think a fourth responsibility was to score, but now I know that also you have to run. So there you go. Um, Strikers who never scored as much as they felt they should have always come to that conclusion, I think. It's about more than just scoring goals, because I really wasn't that prolific. I used to think it was just about scoring goals. Uh, He says, I'm tired of being portrayed as an idiot. Even journalists who I trust are not capable of describing in words what I'm feeling when I'm not playing. But they also ask him, um, you said, Nicholas, that the tiger is your favourite animal. Why is that? He says, the tiger stands at the end of the food chain. He eats to survive without any compassion. He doesn't even feel it. He is the predator par excellence, an animal of dangerous beauty. <laughs> That's what Bettner said. Yeah, I think he must be watching the hunt as well. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've, I can't think of anything better to do with a, with a Sunday night. That's these days, the end of Ken Early's report on sport. Miguel Delaney is ready to talk uh, a good bit more about Manchester City's defeat to Stoke, which we've only really touched on so far, Miguel. I'm looking at your Twitter feed here, and you labelled City's performance a disgrace. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose we we, we use a lot of this kind of um, exaggerated language in football, but <laughs> uh, relative to their quality and what they should be as a team, I, I thought it was a disgrace. I mean, right from very early in the game, I remember seeing David Silva, who is just back from injury, to be fair, but... He, he went in for a 50-50 tackle, completely pulled out, 
you know, Stoke set up another attack, and that was pretty much the story of the whole match. Other than Joe Hart, who made one, well, he didn't actually make a save, but he closed the angle well in Arnautovic just for half time to prevent making it 3 0. Uh, I didn't think a single City player uh, deserved any credit out of the match. Uh, it was an awful performance. Like, from a team that are still the favourites for the title, that have the most complete squad in the Premier League. And it should be so, and we've seen them be so much better than this. We've seen like they've, they've still probably put in the best football this season. To go to a level like we saw on Saturday uh, was awful. I mean, Stoke, Stoke were absolutely brilliant, and you know, performed in their own right. But I think that that was also partly facilitated by just how lax City were, and it was almost like the more the worse City played the more confidence Stoke got, the more they started to enjoy themselves and the more they, they really tried to kind of humiliate them. Even you said it after the game. You said, if we're being honest, we could have embarrassed them. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the, way, the way you describe it there, it sounds like from City's point of view, that's really a psychological weakness. It's not so much... And Hughes did get a lot of praise for how he set his team up tactically, but City weren't necessarily outfoxed. They just, they just weren't that bothered. Uh, the one thing you would say, and you mentioned it as well after the game, and you could see it right through the match, is that Stoke clearly uh, realised that if they played that one type of pass in behind the defence, then uh, Otamendi, in particular Demichelis, given his complete lack of pace, would struggle to deal with it. So that, that, that worked time and time again. But what was probably a bigger problem than that was the fact that they were able to make those passes in the first place because this kind of wide expanse of space in front of the city defence, like Fernando was doing absolutely nothing. It was amazing he wasn't taken off really before he got injured. Uh, but you know, I think I think it is mental with City. I mean, it, we've we've said this for a while. Like, particularly last season, actually, when their title defence didn't go as well. But even I don't think last season they dropped to the levels of this. And like, what I've always wondered, sorry, dropped to the levels of of this game on Saturday. But what I've always wondered with City, I do, I do, you do question whether they have this kind of psychological baseline in the team I mean like they, they they don't really seem to have that hardness that say kind of repeat champions did the way like Ferguson's United did and I, I think it's, it's, it's possibly the fact because as a force they're still relatively young and that they don't have these kind of long-term leaders I mean I think it's Ken actually said it to me on, on Twitter the other day if uh, if Vincent Company isn't there and I would include Yaya Torres maybe if, if neither of those are on the, t- on the pitch there's no one really willing to take responsibility, and there's almost this vacuum. And I do wonder whether they kind of like like at United. Obviously, they had so many of the, those big players like Giggs for so long setting standards. Even at Chelsea, despite what's happening this season, they have people like Terry who kind of on a training pitch just all, always ensure that that there's a that kind of granite hardness to the team. So even if they're not playing well, they have this kind of inherent resolve. Whereas a City, if they're not on it, it just seems to all collapse. Mm. I wonder though, does uh, would some of that come from the fact that you know Manuel Pellegrini is clearly just there as a kind of placeholder? Uh, I mean, there's all this stuff about Guardiola over the last few days, um, and depending on who you believe, it, it does. Judging by some of the things that uh, Manchester United now seem to be saying about Lee Van Hal's reign there, stretching on into the future, you know, forever. They seem maybe to think as though Manchester City might have stolen a march in that regard. But the point is that, you know, absolutely nobody would be surprised, will be surprised when Pellegrini is replaced by another manager at the end of the season. That maybe they, you can't really do this. I mean, the, yeah. you know, that, that, you know, this, this sort of, I mean, even when Ferguson was leaving at the end of the season, when people knew that he, he became a lame duck, 
you know, his team was was losing games. Well, it doesn't matter that it, that it was full of you know big players, uh, Roy Keane, Ryan Giggs, these you know fearsome competitors. They were still losing games. It's it's just a, it becomes a kind of a leaderless, you know, a kind of a directionless situation when when everybody knows that the manager isn't going to be there for much longer. Well, yeah, it has to be a factor. I mean, and even even though they tried to kind of change the squad a bit in the summer, still most of the 2012 team is there, are there. And what, and what did they do in 2013? As soon as it became clear that Roberto Mancini was going to be leaving, they downed tools in the same way. And, I, and, it, and it's, it's not just going to drop performance. It is almost the, the, the downing of tools. It's, it, it, it's held it's just like bad. It, just, it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, the, yeah. it's, they're acting as though it doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter because the, the people who can, everybody can see what actually happens on the field. But I guess, you know, what happens in training, a lot of a lot of kind of what goes on, they know that this this doesn't really count anymore until there's a new yeah. manager here. It's the Real Madrid problem, basically. All the players know. Well, what's going to happen here is the manager will get gone before get gone before us. So ultimately, we're probably safe. And and it, it does breed that kind of wrong. I mean, as you're saying, if if you do have these big figures of one repeat titles, then it it, it does mean there's a, always a rebuke there that there's just just more of a uh, more compensation for when you don't that there, there will be consequences if you if you don't play to a certain level whereas at City that doesn't seem to happen because it's it, and it's not it's not just the way the way it drops in games like Saturday it's it's the frequency which this occurs I mean that's that's about what the third or fourth time this season which you we're, we're only just at the start of December and despite the fact that they've often looked so brilliant in attack that you know it it it, it, it only seems to go in waves like uh, for, for two or three games in a row they can be absolutely sensational. Then two or three weeks after that, they can suddenly suffer this this remarkable drop. I mean, I've no doubt that maybe over Christmas we'll probably see another city six goal haul, which we're you know enthusing about them being the best the best team in England again, probably favourites for the title. But you still just wouldn't have that complete confidence in them to carry that through. Yeah, it was also though an example of um, of what's good about the Premier League this game in the sense that you know. It was a great performance from Arnautovic and also from Shakiri, who, yeah. who, I mean, apart from the fact that he missed a, an absolute tap in in the second half, it was an amazing miss. Um, you know that this Stoke City team actually has got a lot of good players in it. Um, it's the first time I've really kind of seen Stoke under Mark Hughes put on a performance like this. Um, and it's it's funny when you think of Hughes, he's, he's actually been there quite a long time. This is the yeah. third season there. You know, he was sort of he was brought in to sort of change the style. Um, and turn Stoke into a new kind of team, and I don't really think that uh, the results have been uh, have been wildly impressive so far. I mean, they're one of the lowest scores in English football, I think, so far this season. But that was really good uh, against Man City. I mean, Arnautovic and Shakiri in particular, are brilliant players. Yeah, I think I think he's given them the evolution that maybe they always wanted under Pula. I mean, do you remember after I think it was two or three years in the Premier League that Pula then started to try and bring in. A certain type of attacker, like people like Tunke Sanley, but then he couldn't really integrate him because he was completely unwilling to change his overall approach. Uh, and when you use every 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 season or every window, they've kind of brought in more and more of these players to the point now where they have this uh, very mobile attack. And within the context of what they are and the size of the club against what City are, I actually think it was one of the best attacking performances I've seen this season. Uh, it, like I'd actually, since you've been there, well, I've only been to Stoke four times, and if, on those four occasions, I've seen them beat Arsenal, United, Chelsea, and now City. But this, the type of this before, or the type of game this was, was very different to those previous three. 
because it was just, you know, it was pure football. They they ripped City apart with technique, with, you know, risk, with bravery, with, you know, good attacking cohesion. And it wasn't it wasn't just about the way they played together. I mean, some of the individual touches in the game, they, they really were trying to humiliate City in that way. Like, there was one takedown from Bojan in the second half. You know, there was a, a ball absolutely lashed at him about two feet off the ground. And just kind of, you know, on the laces of his boot, he just absolutely killed it. It was beautiful, like a lot of their play. Yeah. Uh, Miguel, just before we let you go, um, I know you're at this game, the Stoke game, rather than uh, the Chelsea game, but you have been covering Chelsea last week, and you're going to be covering this week, and it's a big week for them. They've got to try and stay in the Champions League, which they should be able to do as long as they don't lose. Uh, although they do now look capable of losing to anybody, even Bournemouth. Um, you're writing today that uh, Roman Abramovich still wants Jose Mourinho to stay. Um, is it is he not now kind of clinging to Mourinho like a sort of lucky rabbit's foot? He's kind of like, I'm sure this sort of lucky charm works. I'm not quite sure why it hasn't been working lately, but I'm sure it will work again. So it's, it's just this weird thing where it's already gotten so bad this season and they've already persisted in that he's kind of, you know... <laughs> past the point of when you can like he could have been sacked on what on three or four occasions he's especially given a Brambage history it was he, it was actually ridiculous i mean uh, you know you watch the game bournemouth win it wasn't even that surprising i mean it was obviously surprising the way it ultimately yeah. happened in the end but it wasn't even that surprising and then i thought well i'm supposed to go out but i'll hang on to see Jose Mourinho's <laughs> interview i will wait mm-hmm. to see that and then i saw it and it was just a complete anti-climax as well it's like yeah. when you're just going oh well yeah we lost again well done to Bournemouth. <laughs> there, yeah. there wasn't any of the any any of what I'd come to expect when when Jose Mourinho loses a match. He's completely beaten down. He's used to it now. Yeah, this is it. I mean, that, and that's indicative in itself. Like, I mean, I've been to so many Mourinho press conferences and po- post game, you know, press conferences this season after they've been beaten, and he's tried everything in that regard. He's tried to be magnanimous. He's tried kind of these bizarre rants. But this was just not. It was as if he kind of almost the fight had gone out of him a little bit. Well, I, I think maybe maybe it's a, maybe it's a kind of a strategic choice. I mean, I know we're always we're always kind of saying usual, really. Well, well, just in terms of all his previous, you know, his oh, I'm the best manager ever, seven minute speech, and then his oh, I have nothing to say. All of these things just didn't work and created more problems than they were worth. Maybe, maybe okay. What if I try the unprecedented approach for me of simply congratulating the opponent and saying we need to play a lot better than that, uh, and maybe yeah. you know maybe the players won't play any better, but at least it won't create this kind of. Um, you know, the situation where everyone is saying, oh, this is unbelievable. Jose Reno should be thrown out of the game for an interview like that. Well, this is because someone said it to me last week, and it was kind of Mourinho was actually, because he was in such better form last week. On, on Friday, you know, only a few weeks after he said to the press, you know, you'll get no more funny headlines from me, because, you know, as, because, as a rebuke to the press for being so critical of him. Um, but then suddenly he was kind of trying to joke again he, you know, after the press conference, before he was talking about who, who he thinks should be a. Uh, yeah, the replacement for Neville on Sky, you know, joking about all this. And it, he, he was trying to radiate this kind of sense that everything was back to normal. But just talking to someone from last week about that, they said that he, when, when the situation got, got its worst, and it was all this talk of how um, a lot of the players were turning against him, that he realised this and started to talk to senior players, kind of canvassed them, try, uh, try and work things out. And as, someone said to me, it's amazing what he can do when he actually manages Rather than concentrates on all this noise around it and all these, you know, all this conspiracy and all this, I, I do wonder on Saturday whether that's all part of this. Whether he's trying to present it as just, you know, one of those run-of-the-mill defeats that happens, but you know, we're still focusing on our job. The only thing, the only problem with that job is they can't score goals. Fair enough, Miguel. Brilliant. Thanks a million. No, no bother, lads. Cheeky dog, that is. I went mother about.
your away me, your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big teddy boots here in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beat, I take no beat, I take no, I take no, I take no beat. Just so soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it in fans? Just need to fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the gun is booked out of stuff. Get out, get out! It's actually kind of amazing when you think about, I think what most people are focusing on with Mourinho is, or are his relationships with Diego Costa, for example, the things he's saying about his players, Hazard, the fact that some of those relationships, on a human level, he seems to be struggling, and this does seem to happen after a couple of seasons at any club. But it's amazing that he hasn't worked things out tactically. I mean, uh, Damien Duff made this point of view in the book, in the interview we did with him for the second captain's annual, that everyone sees this big character and knows all about Mourinho's personality, but that his coaching sessions are incredible. And this is, we'd always assume that maybe Duff fell out with Jose at one stage, which never seemed to happen. But he said every day you'd go into training and there'd be something new, something to learn. He's absolutely top-notch at that kind of stuff. So it's amazing that for such a smart manager he's not working out well maybe I don't know maybe you go stale as a coach even tactically and technically after a number of years I, I mean I think that he first of all you, you mentioned Duff there Duff was so impressed with Mourinho I was kind of a little bit surprised by that like in the sense that I thought maybe he'd have a a mixed view of him let's say yeah and it wasn't mixed at all it was totally genuine that was, it was 100% positive yeah um, and I don't and, and Duff, I think Duffer when he says something he he doesn't exactly waste words, so when he yeah. goes out of his way to be to praise Mourinho, he means it. Yeah, um, yeah, he was. And I asked him, "What is that? Just because you're scared of him now?" And he's no. <laughs> I don't. He doesn't. I don't think he is worried about him. But uh, I, I mean, the fact, the problem with it is, I mean, although his his post match performance when we were just talking about there was was quite, you know, it was, it was boring. He didn't read. Really, he didn't give anyone much to latch on to and, and criticize him for. It was just a terrible, terrible performance by Chelsea. When I watched the whole match, they were atrocious. You know, he still hasn't figured out what's what's going wrong, what's actually going wrong on the field. Why are they not able to make any chances? You know, why is it they... It's not even missing chances. They're just not making enough chances. Yeah. Well, there was a miss by, for instance, Nemanja Matic. Um, but, you know, there, there, that's the only one I can think of. And this is against Bournemouth. Okay, Bournemouth have been a team that have given a few... A f- they, they've lost a lot of games by narrow margins. They've been difficult to score against for a lot of teams. Still, you know, their entire team costs less than £2 million. Right? Like, Mourinho's team costs, what, £200 million plus. What are the actual figures? Uh, how recently was it that he had that amazing record of home of not losing a league game at home between... Chelsea and whoever else it was it wasn't it wasn't that long ago that he, they were just impregnable and oh. he just wouldn't lose and now you're, there, now was ten, lo- there was a 10 year spell a, t- a 10 or 11 year spell of not losing a home match and now a home league match regular and it's against it's, four teams as well. it's already happened four times this season I mean so Chelsea's starting team 203 million Bournemouth's 1.3 million the squad is 277 million the, the Bournemouth squad is 6.5 million there's just to lose that is a joke yeah. it's, it makes a joke of, of him, of, of Chelsea. The players should be aware of that. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost beyond explanation now. 
Louis van Gaal, meanwhile, is, well, as you discussed earlier on, Andy Tate seems to think that he should be on the way out, but it looks as though he's going to get a new contract, according to some of the stories this morning. Just uh, Jonathan Wilson is ready to chat about this. Jonathan, you were writing last week and you said that the issues at the moment are genuine for van Gaal. You pointed to the historic example of Dave Sexton as a comparison. What are the similarities here? I mean, there are a lot of differences as well, but I mean, there clearly are similarities. Sexton was there for, for four years, uh, during which time... You know, I didn't win anything. They they finished second in the league, which, in the context of the the late seventies, was actually you know their, their best performance for for a long long time. They got to an FA Cup final in in seventy nine when you know, they were two 0 down with five minutes to go against Arsenal. Got back to two two and then conceded conceded a late winner. So you know they, they were very close to winning two trophies, but there was a sense that his football was was dull. So in in terms of just you know charting progression on the pitch, in, in terms of is his team getting better and better. I think you can make a very good case that, that it was under Sexton. And in fact, he, he won his last seven games, which, you know, to be sacked having won seven games in a row at the end of the season, admittedly, is, yeah, I think you've got every right to think, well, what else am I meant to do? We've won those seven matches. Mm. Um, but it, it seems with Sexton, the decision to, to get rid of him had been taken in the February of his final season, February 1981. Um, and his argument at the time was, well, look, I've got loads of injuries. We really need Ray Wilkins. When he's back, then you'll see the true measure of this team. Wilkins did come back. Sure enough, they they win these seven games in a row. But such was the discontent around Old Trafford at the style of play, less than the results, uh, that, that that he was got rid of in the summer. So I, I, my, my point was that it's not unprecedented at Old Trafford that a manager should be sacked for, for having the wrong style, a style that doesn't fit with this sort of mythic image of... of um, what the what fans, what what the sort of media around the club, what the club's supposed culture is, uh, which doesn't necessarily, I think, you know, the, the image of what that that style should be doesn't necessarily um, map to the reality that if you're if you're winning trophies, people are, are forgiving about that. And I think you know, Ferguson's style changed quite radically from from season to season, but because he he won trophies, people overlooked that, and they sort of still had this dream of this sort of. Um, this Ur United playing this brilliant attacking football, putting crosses in the box, and and, and so the you know the, the the supposed dullness of it, or perceived dullness of uh, and what well, the actual dullness of, of Van Gaal's style is actually a major problem if they continue not to win things. Well, he at the moment, I wonder what you make of his comments after this game, where he said, "I don't understand that they shout attack, attack, because we are the dominating team and not West Ham." Do you think that he? Uh, is uh, is being maybe a little bit disingenuous there? Uh, I I don't know. I, I that, that actually um, it awoken me the, the, this sort of uh, this great neurosis I've got is I don't actually know what attacking is. I, I've tried. I've, I, this is I was doing a Q and A um, before the World Cup in two thousand fourteen, and and somebody said all they wanted to see from England was an attacking side, and they didn't think Roy Hodgson could provide that, and. I sort of started to reply, and I realised I, I I couldn't articulate, and I still find it quite hard to articulate, having thought about it for nearly two years or you know eighteen months. That in this age when counter-attacking is so important, what actually is attacking? If you're a team like United and you're playing a team like West Ham, then you're going to have the ball. That's a get at home. Certainly, you're going to have the ball. That's a given. And if your sort of if your way of attacking is to to probe slowly, uh, you know, to tr- to wait for the opening to 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 appear, then even if you're not having shots, even if you're not creating chances, I, I guess you, you are attacking. But that's clearly not what people think of. It's not what they mean when they, they, they talk of attacking football. 
so I, I, I think there's sort of there's uh, three different polarities coming to play here. One is attacking and defending, and clearly the the we we also have a have a vague notion of what attacking football is and what def- defensive football is. You, you have um, playing with the ball and playing without the ball, and you have sort of a proactive approach and a reactive approach. Now, I guess Van Gaal's football is well, it's with the ball. That's clearly true. It's kind of proactive in that you're you're trying to find the opening. You're not sort of waiting. But in a sense, you are waiting for the opposition to make a mistake. But at the same time, it's not sort of attacking in any any sense that, that you kind of understand it in terms of shots for ending on goal. So I actually I think this the whole notion of what attacking is is a really it's a really hard thing to pin down. And and so I guess my answer is I, I don't know. Well, maybe one element of of what you have to do to attack. I'm reminded here a little bit of uh, Chris Waddle talking to uh, Graham Hunter on a podcast recently. I don't know if you would have heard that interview. Um, but Waddle was talking about how to beat a man with the ball. And the key ingredient of doing this, in his opinion, was almost letting the other guy take the ball. Literally, you had to risk. You, ha- you had to get it so close to him that you know he thinks he's going to get it. Until, and that's the only way that you're actually going to beat him. It's the only way you're going to put him off balance. Essentially, uh, the the ingredient there, the the important ingredient is risk. You have to say, I'm going to do something which might result in losing the ball, and uh, if I do, fair enough, and if I don't, well, then I'm, I'm past this guy. And maybe on a, on a bigger scale, that's the problem with Van Gaal's team, um, that the priority is so much on possession um, that everybody's always kind of selecting a conservative pass, hoping maybe the uh, the chance is, about, is just around the corner, rather than taking the action that maybe is going to make the chance uh, right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But yeah, I, I, I still, so you, you, I go back to that fundamental of how do you attack? You have to have the ball to attack at some point. That means you've got to get the ball. Now, you can get the ball by sitting deep and waiting for the ball to come to you. Uh, waiting, you know, waiting for the, the opposition to, you know, as Waddle says, to, to kind of take that risk and be confident enough in in your your player's defensive capacity and in the structure that even if he does get past the first man, the second man's going to going to get the ball back. Or you can just have the ball and not let the opposition ever have it and sort of stifle them and strangle them like that. Um, so, I mean, yes, it is Van Gaal's football risk averse. Yes, does that make it difficult at times to watch? Yes. Does that necessarily mean it's not attacking? I, I'm not sure. It seems that the I think we're probably reasonably clear on what Manchester United fans feel attacking is and that's do, doing some of what Van Hal does much faster and as we say uh, actually try to make something happen to use that sort of phrase but are you surprised Jonathan or is, would you agree that maybe there's a lack of sophistication amongst the uh, Manchester United fans and maybe English football fans in general despite the fact that they've been treated to 20 odd years of um, the most financially lucrative league in the world producing a lot of the, or buying up a lot of the best footballers in the world, there's still, um, strangely, the fans' tastes haven't necessarily been refined along the way. They still want what they wanted 20, 30 years ago. Um, I mean, I'm not sure it's a lack of sophistication. I, 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 yeah, I think that's a, almost a slightly patronising way of putting it. I, I think the, there was a real problem in the late 80s, early 90s that English football didn't appreciate what its strengths were and was not prepared to evolve those those strengths. And you know, I, mean, I know I've mentioned this before, but you know, England really for about 10 years was, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, was the home of pressing. We were really good at pressing. You know, we were very, you know, we, we, 
the the, the, the uh, Alan Wade, the, the former technical director of the FA, his coaching course that, that he set up in the late sixties of people like Roy Hodgson came through and Bobby Houghton, um, Dave Sexton, in fact. Uh, they had you know Sexton might not have come through our coaching course, but similar ideas anyway. This idea that you had you you broke the game down into um, passages of play. So your, your your theory was very very much practical. You, you, if you have a throw in here, these are the things you can do. Let, let, let's let's look at what happens if we lose the ball here. Let's look look at what happens if we if we have the ball here. And it's a very sort of practical application of, of a, a simple theory of we want two banks of four. We want to press together those those, those two banks. We deny the opposition space by by doing so. And that in the you know that was what won England the World Cup under under Ralph Ramsey. Um, but we we seem to sort of for some reason when 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 other countries start to, to to find ways to combat that and start to press in a different way, so you know, the, the Dutch most most obviously in the seventies, and you know I was reading a match report uh, from nineteen seventy seven earlier this week when England lost two 0 at home to the Dutch, and the arguments were very much what you see rehearsed today of you know, why can't we have the spontaneity that the, the, the Dutch have, and actually. And yeah, this comes back to this point of what is attacking. That, that the only sorry, Jonathan, just on that point, I actually read the same report, and I think I think uh, I think it was Sean Engel who retweeted it, wasn't it? Which is was why people have seen it. Yeah, the best um, the best bit of it I thought was when Don Revy said Don Revy uh, Don Revy was the England manager, right? And he said, uh, "Yeah, uh, obviously that didn't work. I'm going to go back to the to what we think of as the old fashioned English way for the for the next game. So the big, I mean, I can't imagine Roy Hodgson actually coming out and saying that. that. Yeah, if if he he wouldn't have the confidence necessarily to come out and say, "Look, we know we can't do what they do, but we know what we can do, and that's what we're going to do in the next game." Maybe English football is just a bit more confident about itself at that time. Yeah, possibly, but see, I, I, I don't think that the, the basics of English football and the basics of Dutch football at the time were that different. And I, I think this is the thing that there's actually quite... You know, the way we've been brought up, oh, the Dutch, they, they pass the ball, they're brilliant. I don't think it's that different to what, what England were doing in, in, in those days in terms of the defensive structure, in terms of playing with a high offside line, squeezing the game. The difference was the Dutch had better technical players and were more confident on the ball. But in, in terms of the basic structures, in terms of the, the, the basic theory of how you play, I, I don't think it was that different. And the problem is we, we sort of, rather than making, making our players technically more adept or you know, looking at ways of improving the coaching to, 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 to improve them from a technical point of view, we sort of just thought, oh, that whole blueprint, that's really, you know, that's prehistoric. Um, and it's not. It's actually the basis of what, what Dortmund did in the club. Um, so I, I, I think what happened at Lillishaw, what happened with Charles Hughes, which was to, um, to go down a theoretical route that was just wrong, you know, the, the, the long ball theory, the position of maximum opportunity. Wrong is maybe the wrong word, but, but massively unsophisticated. Uh, it sort of, it made us forget what we were good at. Uh, and, and what we were good at was these two banks of four pressing high, the same base as the Dutch model, but unfortunately with technically inferior players. Um, so, uh, I mean, the, the original question was, yeah, has English football moved on? Have we, have we sort of, are we unsophisticated? I, I just think that there's a sort of a, a, a crisis of faith set in, in in the. I guess it was it was begun by by the few you know, back-to-back failures to qualify the World Cups in '74 and '78, and carried on by you know the the then dismal football of, of, of England in the early '90s, um, and we haven't quite resolved that, and we don't quite know what what you know. You, every time there's a major tournament and a, and a, and a country wins, England feel, oh we have to copy the Spanish model, we have to copy the German model. 
and yeah, maybe, maybe we should go back to, to the English model of the late 50s and early 60s and work out how we can bring that into the modern age. Mm. Um, I suppose uh, another feature of tournaments, recent tournaments, has been the disappointing form of Wayne Rooney. Now, Rooney obviously is absent at the moment from Manchester United's team. He's got some manner of injury. Um, was Louis van Gaal maybe a little bit tone deaf or was this was this a, a bit more pointed when he said he said something after the game along the lines of, do you think Luis Suarez or Sergio Aguero would score in this team? I think they would. Uh, and I mean, I couldn't I couldn't believe that he mentioned at least one of those players, possibly even both of them as the example. But I mean, he, what he is saying there is effectively a top class striker would score goals for us. Um, but the obvious implication for that is that Rooney... He hasn't been doing, you know, he wasn't there yesterday, but I think that's the first of the five nil all draws that he's actually missed. It's a fairly pointed comment about him, really, of the type that I haven't heard Van Hal say before. You, you sense a bit of a maybe growing disillusionment there? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I, I think that slightly links to, to a point that Van Hal had made previously about um, United lacking a, a quick player up front. Well, they do have quick players, but the quick players are very inexperienced. So you've got a problem that you have three pacey players who who maybe can take advantage of, of a slight gap uh, in in Lingard, uh, Martial, and, and Depay, but all of them are in various ways inexperienced or raw. And then you have Rooney, who's very experienced, but that that explosive burst of pace that he had as a in his late teens has has gone. So, I mean, Van Hal can argue his way out of that comment by by, by making that point. But I'm actually not sure. That, I mean, Suarez maybe would score because I kind of think Suarez would score in any team. I'm not, not necessarily sure Aguero would score in that team. The, I, you know, the, I think thinking about it and saying United have had fewer shots in every team in the Premier League apart from Sunderland, which, which suggests as an issue less of finishing than of creativity. Now, of course, a, you know, a, a Suarez type striker and, and Aguero as well create chances for themselves. But United kind of should be aiming. A bit higher than that, you know. They should be creating chances for their centre forward, and then whatever he makes for himself is a bonus. Whereas at the minute, this sort of very pedestrian approach means that you, they're reliant on a moment of brilliance from somebody. And, and you know, to be fair to Martial, he has produced it every now and again. They're, they're very reliant on that to to play opponents down. Whereas teams near the top of the table, yeah, you know, that, that should be an, an extra something. They should just be creating chances from from the you know basic approach play. Jonathan, brilliant stuff as always. Thanks a million. Cheers, thanks. What do you think, and would Sergio Aguero score for Manchester United on a regular basis? I think he would score more goals than Wayne Rooney. But less than Luis Suarez? Jonathan seems to think Suarez can just arrive in anywhere and create goals. Well, because I think, I think Suarez is maybe a bit more versatile um, in terms of he can also play, he can, he can physically battle against defenders, as he was doing over the weekend. I don't know if you saw him physically battling um, against one of the Valencia Physically defenders. Physically stamping, perhaps? The physical battle took the form of he, he stood on the guy's uh, foot and then, in, in an almost childish way, lifted his, other stand, lifted his other foot into the air in order to better grind the studs on his heel down into the guy's foot and then fell over uh, theatrically over the guy who, who went down screaming. And, Got away uh, with it. Well... I can't remember the name of the defender now. I'm showing my ignorance. But he then posted up photo- photographs of his wounds, you know. He had like a scratch here and a scratch on his, on his arm saying, oh, look what I've been, you know, as though, I've, like, a, you know, like a surfer who's who's been attacked by a shark. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Come, really, Should, you know, is that, 
really that big a deal? You do for well, like being stand up. You do. Come on, you're supposed to be a professional footballer. You do sometimes forget about that side of Luis Suarez. It hasn't really surfaced at Barcelona yet. I saw somebody making the point. I can't remember who it was now. So I'm, I'm sorry, it wasn't my point. But saying, imagine Neymar was to post up a photo of every scratch and bruise that he took during a game. Yeah, or he Messi. He they don't do that. So. I don't know, I thought it was a bit much. But maybe the guy, the guy probably obviously felt there was injustice there because uh, this is obviously intentional, obviously delivered foul by Suarez, which the referee didn't punish. All right, if you want to find out a little bit more about our new book, which is out now, get on to secondcaptains.com. It's a Second Captain Sports Annual Volume 1. You can buy it there or you can just have a have a look for a little bit more, a little bit more detail on it and go and buy it in the shop, whatever you want to do. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you too. Huh? Thanks very much for listening to the show. We'll have another podcast out for you today. Hope you enjoyed this one and we'll chat to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.